1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll begin reading in verse 50 through the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, I'll be reading out the New King James Version this morning as is my custom. God's Word declares, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. This morning we want to conclude um, this portion of Scripture, not because we get to the end of the chapter, because on this occasion the chapter breaks are appropriate um, with the content of Paul's message. And that content here has been focused uh, from chapter 15, 1, uh, following upon the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And again, we're going to back up a little bit just to refresh our memories that we began this study in chapter 15 uh, by looking at the historical evidence of our Lord's resurrection. This was not something that uh, was dreamed up or that was uh, hallucinated by a group of people, but rather uh, was amply evidenced, was given multiple testimonies of eyewitnesses um, not just of 12 men or 11 men, but of uh, hundreds of individuals who were alive at the time of this writing of Corinthians and could easily have been verified or uh, proven to be wrong. We find, in addition to that, the absolute necessity of the resurrection, that without a resurrected Lord, that there is no power to Christianity. There's nothing here worth our time and effort and energy, let alone worth our faith. That there is an absolute necessity that if we do not serve a living Savior, that we have nothing. <laughs> there is no substance to any of our teaching. There is no substance really to any of our belief systems if we do not have a living Lord today. Then that sets forward this contrast between the resurrection, which is our hope, and vanity, which is, if, that's, if this life is all there is, then eat, drink, and be merry, and die, if that's all there is. And Paul sets forth that because we have a living Lord and a living God, and that that truth is going to have an impact upon humanity, that is that we have an eternality before us. That is, that in our created state, um, and that has been passed down throughout all of humanity from Adam, is that we have uh, eternality. Not forever in the past, but we are everlasting in some form. And not only just the spirit, but that there will be a physical 
physicality to us at the resurrection as well. And thus all men, all men, every single person will be resurrected. This is the promise of God's Word. Some will be resurrected to eternal life and some will be resurrected to eternal judgment. And this must be clearly held, or again, we have no message. There is no gospel to give to anyone if there is no resurrection. And so if the Jehovah's Witnesses are right, and this life is all there is, and if you die, you just cease to exist, then eat, drink, and be merry. Live it to its hilt, if this is all there is. But if God's Word is true, if Christianity is true, and there really is a holy, holy, living God, and there is a resurrection of all men, and we must stand before that holy, holy, holy God in our resurrected form and face a judgment, oh, then there is a frightening aspect of facing that kind of God without the work of Jesus Christ covering us cleansing us of our sin, atoning for us, propitiating for us all that is involved in Christ's death, burial, resurrection, ascension. And so we are either the most pitiable of men, First Corinthians tells us, or we have the greatest hope known to man. There is no middle ground. There is no wishy-washiness. And if your Christianity is sitting there and saying, well, it's okay to believe whatever you want to believe, it's not okay. Either what we believe is absolute truth and is our hope, or we have no hope. There's no reason to be here. Not only do we not have hope, but if there's no resurrection, then no man does in any belief system. So Paul has laid forth this careful argument. He then talks about the power of resurrection to make us alive, not just in the future, but also by the resurrection of Christ, he is able to put an end to death by covering sin, its cause. And that as all of us die because of our relationship to Adam as his children, And we all trace our lineage there, and thus we are all one race, the human race, tracing all of our lineage back to that man, and we inherit that sin from our father, and so we all die. So then, by the power of the resurrection, we have life through a second Adam, an Adam that didn't sin. His name is Jesus. And by his vicarious death, that is, dying in our place, we can have life. By conquering sin and death, In himself, he offers that same victory to all who would trust in him. All because of the resurrection. But if there is no resurrection, we have no Savior. Without a Savior, we have no message. And we are wasting our time here today. And Paul presents us as the crucial truth. One of the cardinal truths the church must cling to, must advocate, must preach. He goes on to talk about the evidence that even in the world, men know there is a resurrection. Men know there is something more to us than just this flesh. 
We are more than animals. And so we can go out into the world and we can investigate all these different cultures that are out there. Um, we can go out into the bush country. We can go out into the jungles. We can go into uh, civilization after civilization. And what will we consistently find is that they believe there's something of a spiritualness to man. There's more to us. We can't always tell what, but we all know there's more to us than critters. We are more than just this flesh. And Paul points the Corinthians to the region around them where there were people right there outside of Corinth who were off uh, baptizing for the dead. It wasn't a practice of the church. It was a practice of that group of heathens out there who are going off and dunking their dead people in water so that they could take care of their spirit properly. And so he gives evidence from society at large as well. And then he answers the question of the way the resurrection happens. That it is not a reconstitution of these cells and molecules and body parts. That the resurrection is something much more than that. So we aren't worried about, oh man, I, I broke a fingernail and I don't know where the rest of it is. And we're not storing all of our body parts to help God at the resurrection. Because He doesn't have to find all the cells that used to be part of your body to reconstitute you. So whether you are burned to death, whether you are drowned in the sea and become fish food, or whether you are eaten by lions, in whatever death you have, you can have a confidence that you will participate in the resurrection, Period. Because the resurrection isn't of this flesh. We're given new bodies. And that we have a, just as we have a physical birth and then a spiritual birth, so you have a physical death, but you have a spiritual reborn in the flesh. Or to eternal death. But we have that which is natural first and then the spiritual second. And he gives the illustration of a, grain of wheat that falls in the ground and dies and it must die to bring forth fruit. But we don't expect uh, wheat seeds to start bubbling out of the ground, do we, when we plant a wheat seed? We expect something very different to come out of the ground. We expect something green. We expect something that, that's growing. And, and I've stored wheat seeds uh, for extended periods of times and they don't grow. They don't get bigger you know, the longer you store them. They're just the same and they never turn green. They're always brown. But once you plant them, we get something different. We get a plant coming out that's green and grows and doesn't really look like a seed. It produces some, but the plant itself doesn't resemble that. And so it is in the resurrection that it is not of this natural form. It'll be recognizable and there'll be certain scars that you will carry with you, I'm convinced, into eternity. For Christ did. In His resurrected form, He carried the scars of His crucifixion. And I would contend that anything that occurs to your body, to God's glory, will be carried with you into eternity. Think about that a little bit. For there will be magnified to God's glory, to the favor of Christ. And so we have the description of how does the resurrection happen? What is it exactly? And, it, and hopefully it convinced us to look for something different 
than what the world often describes as the resurrection as becoming an angel or becoming um, a zombie or whatever. You got all these different descriptions that we have in popular culture um, of what happens, what does a resurrected man look like. And of course, right now we have uh, the Christmas carol right now we got to watch because it's the holiday season. And so we all have Jacob Marley coming up the thing with his chains, right? Have that image in our mind and put before us. Um, God's Word doesn't declare that. There's a resurrection to life and a resurrection to judgment. And it's of a different nature than this body. We then come to our passage before us today. And we are confronted with how it will all happen in the very end. What will be the conclusion of this natural form that we have? Not just in one person's life, but in terms of all humanity, what will be the end? And this we want to study fully this today in the next half hour or so. Let's go, Lord, in prayer, though, first of all. Lord God, we do thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. And Lord, as we now investigate the promise of your soon return and all that will transpire in that time, we ask for your help to understand it, to appreciate it, and Lord, to make it ours if it is not already. We might not miss such a wonder as escaping even physical death that you offer. Lord, as always, when we come to your word, we ask for your spirit's control. That you might guide what is said and guard what is said. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, verse 50 says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot, cannot, cannot (laughs) inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. And we're going to be given these two terms, uh, flesh and blood, and then along with it, uh, and and we can put in its place really is the word mortal. The mortal, that is this flesh, this body, the living body. Uh, The mortal is has not died yet. But in this passage, when we get to the word corruptible, um, it's always going to refer to the dead. And so you're going to see them paired off together. You're going to see the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither can the corruptible inherit the incorruptible. And so those who have already died uh, cannot inherit something um, if they are just dead in their sin. Just as we in this flesh cannot inherit eternal life if our confidence is only in this flesh. And so he's going to keep setting this up as the flesh or the word mortal and incorruptible. It's referring to the living and the dead. And so both are going to need a transformation in order to be able to function within the presence of God at the resurrection. And so that transformation that's been described for us in verses 35 through 50, now as we get into 50, we're going to start seeing why is it so necessary? Well, it's necessary because the flesh that we carry today, the degrading and and rotting flesh that we put in the grave, um, cannot uh, be brought into heaven. Uh, Why? Well, this body was designed for this earth. 
And God is going to destroy this earth and all that's in it. <clears throat> and so our new body is going to be of a different nature. It's going to be incorruptible. It's going to be Im- immortal. Not immortal. Immoral. It's going to be immortal. Okay? It's not going to be destroyed. And so we find this transformation that God has promised. And again, lined up very easily with other passages of Scripture that we all know fairly well of First Thessalonians and other passages in, in Revelation as well. Uh, even going back in the Old Testament, we find the statement of David and of Job and others testifying that they believed in a resurrection. Why is this necessary? It's because our promise is that we have a place in the new heaven and the new earth, or we have a place in a place called the lake of fire. We often use the word hell, but hell technically um, is going to be a temporary place that's going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And so the lake of fire is your eternal destination without Christ. And so you have a different kind of body, a body uh, even in judgment that doesn't really ever cease to exist. Christ describes the place where the worm never dies, where the fire never goes out. Um, Eternal death, essentially. Thus we are resurrected to the eternal life to inherit this place of God's abode that we describe as heaven, the new heavens, the new earth, uh, and specifically for the church, the new Jerusalem, um, or the lake of fire, a place of eternal judgment. Either way, we have an incorruptible body, an immortal body. And for those of us who may be here for the uh, rapture, for the catching up of the church described in Thessalonians, we come to verse 51 and we recognize right away. Paul is saying, listen, there's, there's two people here, some who are alive, still in their flesh, and some who are dead. Neither one are going to miss out on the resurrection. And so Christ is going to show up, and here's the mystery. Here's this wonderful truth. This, uh, and, and mystery doesn't mean that this is something you've got to figure out in the Bible. Mystery, the word mystery really refers to just something that previously was hidden that is now revealed. So it's not something you got to sit there and go, oh, this is a mystery I have to solve. That's not what Paul's saying. What Paul's saying is, here's something that is a truth that has been hidden in the past that by my saying next is going to be revealed right now. And here it is, Corinthians. Not everybody's going to sleep. And the sleep referred to here is when Christians leave this flesh preparing for eternity. So when we have a Christian funeral, Paul is very careful that whenever a Christian dies, quote-unquote, uh, we refer to him as sleeping because he isn't really dead at all. He has just gone from this life to life eternal. And that's why he refuses to use the word death with referring to Christians. For we have associated ourselves with the death of Jesus Christ and vicariously, that is, in our place, Christ has died. And so that is what it means to trust in Jesus Christ. Saying when he died, he died for me that his righteousness might be mine, that my sin put him on that cross and killed him. And I repent of that sin and turn to him. This is the gospel. 
So for those who have trusted in Christ their Savior, there is no such thing as real death, but rather a movement from this beggarly life to everlasting life. And let there be no mistaking what's to come is superior in every respect to what is. And so he says, okay, not all of you. Here's the thing I'm going to tell you that maybe you didn't catch before. Maybe I haven't taught it fully to you before. But here we go. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to tell you a mystery. I'm going to reveal something to you that you didn't know before, but it is true. We are not all going to die. Not all Christians are going to go to sleep. We're not all going to get buried. But that doesn't mean that we are going to... Let me let's see how I want to say this. That doesn't mean that your body is just so spectacular God couldn't kill it. Because you still have to have your body transformed to for heaven. And so he says, we're not all going to sleep, but we will all be changed. He's going to describe how, but let's talk about this change, because he refers to it kind of as this taking off and putting on. That we're going to take off what is mortal. Take off what is dying. And remember, we talk about this body of death that Paul said, it's just, it was born to die. I mean, it was, it's, I mean, death is, as made it what it is and and today we even talk about well there's only two things that are for sure in this world and it's death and taxes um well not to me (laughs) death isn't for sure to me life is for sure for the believer we have life because of the power of the resurrection of jesus christ our turning from sin to god's son and making Him our Lord moves us from death to life. And so this mortal, this weak flesh that is constantly dying, and that's what it is doing as you um, have skin cells dying, your body is trying to replace cells as quickly as possible, but it, it's dying. Even when it's growing, it's dying. This mortal body is going to put on immortality. And that reference that we have here in Corinthians, um, verse 53, it's the secondary reference, there's a second passage, this mortal must put on immortality, is referring to those that aren't going to experience death. They're going to go right from the mortal flesh into immortal flesh um, by a direct change of God upon their physique to transform us into this heavenly uh, bound body that he has described for us in the verses previous. The other terminology is about the corruptible. That is those who have already died. And in verse 53, he rightly puts them first, as well as in 52 also. Uh, But we're going to look at 52 here in a minute. This corruptible must put on incorruption that those who have already died and are decaying in the grave will also participate in this and they will have a body with no corruption and no decay. 
And it's not a reconstitution necessarily of every cell that's there that is decayed, that's turned to dust or turned, or evaporated or, or just sitting there as a mineral, but, but rather it is a whole new fashioning, this new body that is, that has some link to that, but it's of a different nature. It's a, it's nature's design for heaven. And so we have the dead being resurrected into this non-decayed body. And we have those who are yet alive being made into this new body. And they don't sleep at all. They don't experience death at all. And this is, it's not just that the hope of Christianity is that we are around till Christ comes. And that is the position of Jehovah's Witnesses. I hate to keep picking on the same group in one sermon, but... um, their only hope is if they survive till Jesus comes. Because those are the only people that are going to go into the kingdom with Jesus as if those who are alive. Well, Corinthians tells us that there's two groups of people that are going to go into heaven. Those who have already decayed in their flesh are going to get undecayed spiritual flesh uh, for heaven. And those who are still alive are going to be transformed into these that aren't dying bodies. And both are going to be there in their order. And Paul, I think, is very deliberate in that description of that order. In fact, in Thessalonians, he tells us that specifically that the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. And that word caught up, by the way, is in Latin the word rapturus, which is where we get rapture. So if you hear anyone say the word rapture is nowhere in the Bible, it's because we don't have a Latin Bible. The word rapture um, is there. It's, def- it's English called caught up, um, going back into the Greek. But in the interim, pass, uh, interim period of time in the Latin Bibles, that word is rapturous. And so um, we are caught up. We are raptured. And so when that happens, the dead precede us. And so Paul, I believe, is very deliberate here in saying that first, that which is corruptible takes on incorruption. And then that which is mortal hasn't died yet, hasn't decayed yet, but we are dying as we are living, um, is going to take on living, living flesh of a different nature designed for heaven. So we have this wonderful description that when all this happens, it will be the end of death altogether. It has been swallowed up in victory, he says. Well, how is it going to happen? And verse 52 is both a very exciting text, but also a very frightening text. And I'll explain why it's both. You might say, how can it be a frightening text? Um, Just hang on. First, I'm going to talk about how exciting it is for most people in this room. Maybe everyone. It's exciting because suddenly, wham, in the twinkling of an eye, and whether that's a figure of speech or, or if we want to technically define that, um, at the last trumpet, and again, Thessalonians describes it, there's the trumpet of the archangel that will sound. Christ has already described it also in, in Matthew 24, that at that trumpet, the gathering of the elect, the gathering of the believers will occur, that the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive remain will be caught up together to meet Him in the air, in the clouds, and so will ever be with the Lord. How quickly will it happen? Just like that. 
So as soon as the trumpet sounds, boom, the resurrection occurs. Boom, the transformation of those who are alive occurs. And we have this suddenness that in, in, in just a moment, boom, it's done. We don't have to sit there and try to define exactly how brief that moment is. You know, the time it takes light to go from the front of the eye to the back eye. That's a twinkle. Um, I don't know that. Maybe. But I think we all get the picture, don't we? Like that. And no, I don't believe that it will be a secret thing, but it will happen so quickly that you're going to blink and miss it. And this is why it's a terrifying thing. There are a lot of individuals out there today who are putting off making any commitment to Christ because they're going to wait to see how it all pans out. And they're pretty sure that they'll have just enough time to get things right with God right before it happens or as it's happening. And what a passage like this tells me is that no such thing exists. It happens with such speed and such unexpectedness that there is no time to say, Oh God, save me. Because by the time you get O out, it's over. And that is why the Bible overwhelmingly continually moves us for urgency that today is the day of salvation. That we don't put it off to another time. We don't push that till, well, when I see this or that or when I'm satisfied about that or the other thing. Rather that we say, I need to deal with this today because tomorrow may be too late. Not just in the in the mortality that we have. I mean, certainly there should be urgency in the realization that we could all leave this room or not even leave this room and have a sudden uh, event that takes our life. What Paul is here saying is that, listen, the coming of Christ will be unexpected and sudden. There will be no time to get things right. When I see it, once I see it, that actually happens, then I'll believe. No, you won't. And again, Thessalonians tells us that the reason you won't is because God's going to send a delusion that you'll have to believe the lie of the evil one. And shame on our churches who are teaching that you have seven years between the rapture and the coming of Christ to accept him. You will not. This is the age of salvation. And when Christ comes to rapture his church, it will be the end of the age of salvation. And there will be no second, third, fourth chances. This is your opportunity. And that is why with every relationship and everyone we engage in, our focus, our attention needs to be on the urgency of that message. You need Jesus today. Because I don't know you have a tomorrow. In evangelism circles, we talk about friendship evangelism and the process of gradually giving out the gospel. And uh, it's and we can convince ourselves that, well, my aim 
ultimately someday is to give them the whole gospel. But I've got to build up credibility to that day. And I can't find that in God's word anywhere. It is the assumption that you always have another chance. And that assumption, and by the way, every assumption is an affront to God. When we assume these things, that we have another day, we'll have another conversation, we'll have another holiday to deal with that, we'll have some other... is foolishness. Today is the day, because in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, a last trumpet, this will all happen. We who know Christ will be changed. But those left behind will have no hope, only deception. But when it is all finished, there is a great ending victory that moves us to action. And this we want to spend our remaining time in. And that is, O death, where is your sting? Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what a wonderful statement and we rejoice in it we we contrast it to the vanity of not having christ to the victory to the overwhelming power of the resurrection over these horrible enemies that no army on earth can deal with that enemy of sin that enemy of death that we all say will claim us and yet christ says no it doesn't have to be i've already been victorious over them i have fought sin i have fought death and i have claimed them I have conquered them. I have destroyed them. You simply need to become a member of this kingdom, the kingdom that has ruled over sin and death and has destroyed its claim over all in it, the kingdom of God. What a powerful presentation. Where is its power over us now? What can it do to us? So the world wants to come and lop off your head for the testimony of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Laugh at them. Look at the foolishness of it. Christ has already conquered death and they're going to try to threaten us with death. Well, you're going to move me from the category of second to first class boarding. Right? We go from the second wave of boarding to move me up to the first wave of boarding in the rapture. Death has no victory. And because of that, sin has no power. Still present around us and in us. We haven't quite gotten to the point of removing the presence of sin. But I think... uh, we use that as too much of an excuse to actually sin. Its presence should be diminishing in your life as you move along in your Christian walk. Not only the power or the penalty, but the presence of sin should also be lessening. And this I want to get to. We, we all want this chapter to end at verse 57. We all want to hear that glorious declaration of victory. We all want to stand up and cheer and go, Hooah! We got it. We took death down through Jesus Christ. We are the conquerors. We all want it to end right there. And because that's where all our movies end, and we see the credits and we hear the fancy music and that's the end. But the chapter has one more verse. 
And that verse is the so what verse. So what does this mean to you, Christian? That we have an eternal hope that death has been conquered by our Savior Jesus Christ, that sin has been uh, ruled over by our Lord, um, that it has no longer any penalty for us, has no longer any power over us. So what? Well, we have a therefore at the end of this chapter that none of us really want to be there, but it is, so we're just going to have to take it. Okay, so man up a little bit. Put on your steel-toed boots if you need to. Here we go. Therefore, because of this, all of this in chapter 15, all this understanding of the resurrection and what it means, what's entailed in it, therefore, my beloved brethren, this is for Christians, this is not for anyone else, my beloved brethren always refers to those who claim Christ. Here we go, church. This is for you. If all this is true and you really believe it, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. A threefold call to action. Cannot be wavering back and forth. between Christ and the world. Wavering back and forth whether we believe that or not believe that. For our trust has been declared in the one who has conquered the greatest enemy of man, his own sin. And he is our Lord. He is our King. We are his slaves. He is master. Let's be steadfast. That is faithful in that immovable. This is not about rigidity. This is about knowing that what is stated is true. And therefore, I have no reason to be moved. By any threat or argument, I will be here in Christ. And anyone that wants to come in and tinker with my theology of Christ and wants to tinker with the truth from the virgin birth or the pre, uh, uh, existence of Christ all the way through the resurrection and ascension. Anyone wants to mess with that, I am immovable. They will find me uncompromising in this truth. But not only will they do that in my belief system, and in my declaration, they will find it in my life as well. That if we really, really, really believe 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we will be staunchly standing in righteousness. And no carrot offered by this world will move us from our position. And then, thirdly, we will always abound in the work of the Lord. Not always putter in the work of the Lord. It's not our hobby, folks. It's not tacked on after everything else is taken care of. If I have time. If I can fit him into my schedule. I don't find that anywhere in here. I find the word always and the word abounding 
that the work of the Lord is the top priority of my life. Why? Because of the power of the resurrection. Because everything that takes care of this flesh is of temporal nature because this flesh is mortal. So I'm going to invest in what's eternal. And to do that, I must abound in the work of the Lord. That the church ought to be about that as its number one priority. That we don't give the leftovers to the ministry of the Lord. We give the first fruits. And all that we would learn, the Old Testament principle, first fruits. I want to give my first to God. Not my seconds. Not my leftovers. Not the stuff that I... Well, I would have taken this to Goodwill, but um, well, if your church can use it, here you go. You know what would have happened if Israel had brought their seconds to the temple for a sacrifice to God? He would have killed them. They were called upon to bring their first fruits, the best of their flock. The spotless lamb, the one that you want to raise to be your breeder stock. You bring that to me. It's mine. You bring me the firsts, not the seconds, not the leftovers. And this is what is described here, that we are always abounding in the work of the Lord, that it is the priority of my life, that it's going to consume me, that everything else takes a second, third, fourth seat to that, that this is my priority. It trumps even the basic necessities of life, of food, water, shelter. It's my work for Christ. that I abound in it, that it is that it is just welling up and that it is just... Um, driven into my life. That there is an energy there that is unsappable. Because it's not based upon my will, but upon the power of the resurrection. Because of my knowledge of that, Why? Why can we do those three things? Steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. Because if you really, really believe in the resurrection, you know something about every work done for Christ. It's not worthless. Ever. Remember, we have been contrasting throughout this chapter the hope of the resurrection and the despair and worthlessness if there is none. Vanity over here, hope over here. Resurrection, hope. No resurrection, vanity. Well, now he uses that same word, that your labor will not be in vain in the Lord. Why? Because you really, really, really believe in the resurrection. And therefore, you're going to bound in the work of the Lord because you know that that work is eternal. That lunch isn't. Because pretty much by dark, you're wanting more. And that's what moves some of these characters that we see in the Bible to do ridiculous things like go off in the wilderness and fast and eat bugs and wear goat's hair. Because serving the Lord 
was their priority. And if that meant lowering their standard of living so they're just eating bugs and wearing goat hair, so be it. I'm serving the Lord because what I do for the Lord will last forever. Why? Because of the resurrection is true. And that's a very un-American thing to say, to lower your standard of living to serve the Lord. Um, and frankly, it's one that none of us like to hear. But that's what this is about. Labor for the Lord will never be worthless. It will always be credited. It will be eternal. It's worthy of your investment of all your resources. Your time, your energies, your capacities, your material possessions, your wealth, all of it. And secondly, any and every way you expend your resources on this earth is going to end and be worthless, ultimately. And so you choose your investment model. I prefer... God's. And this is for the church. If you're not a believer today, you can try to do all these things for God. Go to church. You can try to give. You can try to be a nice person. But none of this really applies to you because you have not experienced the victory over sin and death that only Jesus Christ offers. And that must come first. But brethren, once you are members of this victorious army of Jesus Christ, it's time we live like it. And take verse 58 and make sure it's part of our declaration of the power of the resurrection in our lives. It's not just for the future. It should be proven today in your life that you have a future to invest in. 